Mindfulness Mode 202. Those instances where I've I've stepped towards it and embraced it have actually been the biggest growth points of my life. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on today's Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm still celebrating our 200th episode, and I know you are too. We're still giving away Mindfulness Mode t-shirts to celebrate. To win yours, send me an email saying what you like about the show to Bruce at MindfulnessMode.com. I'm looking forward to announcing the winners on an upcoming show. Also, the Mindfulness Mode YouTube channel is up. Yay! Just go to MindfulnessMode.com forward slash TV to check it out. Last time on Mindfulness Mode, we talked to a leadership expert who explained how her Great Dane, yes, her dog, can teach you mindfulness and leadership skills. Check out Dr. Ann Gaddy on episode 201. Today, I'm talking with an anxiety expert who has personally experienced extreme stress and overwhelm, and now teaches others how to deal with it and move through it. My guest is Tim J.P. Collins. So sit back, relax, and benefit from today's episode on Mindfulness Mode. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm excited. I have Tim J.P. Collins on with me today. Hey, Tim, are you in Mindfulness Mode? Absolutely, Bruce. I'm ready to go. Let's do this. All right. That's great. Well, let's start right here. What does mindfulness exactly mean to you, Tim? For me, um, mindfulness is just about being present. Um, I think that, you know, partly in my own story, but I think so much in our lives, we're distracted by you know, flashing devices and screens and and work and and life kind of takes over. And so for me, being mindfulness is recognizing that and and making sure that I create time for total disconnection, where it's just me and my thoughts. I'm actually allowed to to think without being interrupted and without getting sidetracked. Well, you experienced major anxiety. I know that. And then your life changed. Can you kind of go back there and share with Mindful Tribe a little bit about that anxiety experience and how it did change your life so that you started helping others? Yeah, of course. And I could talk about this for some time, Bruce, so feel free to cut me off okay. uh, if I go too long. But yeah, it's essentially the the early stages of my career, kind of in my early 20s, getting into working life, as many people do, it was all about making money. It was all about cranking out uh, as much as possible. And, you know, the modern day term of this is like the hustle. Um, And I did that without any care or thought to my own well-being, um, without any care or thought to like, what do I actually want to do or be in the world? It was just make more money, get a better business title, get a better job. Um, You know, society taught me that. My my youth taught me that in terms of people said, what are you going to do when you grow up and how much money are you going to make and what kind of house are you going to live in? So I was very much um, kind of designed for that. And so I chased it and I chased it eventually to the detriment of my own health. Um, and that took some time. It took a number of years to kind of build it up. But I kind of neglected my physical health, my nutrition, my mental health in terms of um I didn't deal with stress particularly well. I kind of did the old classic um, bury it technique where I just kind of tried to ignore it and carry on. Um, 
and eventually that caught up with me. Um, I'd, by that point I'd done well, I was good at what I did. And so I bought the biggest house I could afford. I bought the extra car. I'd thrown my kids in private school and, and done all those things, which, um, as I kind of grew into my, my income, I grew into my lifestyle. Um, and then comes the added pressure of having to deal with it all and having to maintain it. And that's what started to get to me was the, the anxiety and stress associated with like, I have to keep this machine running. Otherwise, you know, everybody's going to find out. Um, and so one day I'd flown on an airplane from Toronto to London in England and uh, got off the plane. And instead of going to my room and being a sensible young man and going to bed early, I thought, no, I'm going to stay up late and drink as much as I physically can. Um, and so I ended up drinking five or six pints, staying up late, got up the next morning, double espresso into my presentation where I stood up to give a speech. And um, that's when I had my first ever major panic attack. Um, and a combination of, you know, all of the those kind of external factors of me not taking care of myself um, created this sort of perfect storm, as I call it, for for years of suppressed emotion and fears and, you know, the, the imposter complex and all these things to, to come out in quite a dramatic uh, implosion where I felt like I was having a heart attack. Uh, I didn't know at that time it was a panic attack because that wasn't in my vernacular. I wasn't right, aware yeah. of such a thing. And so, right. um, yeah, I just, I had a, a bit of a meltdown and had to leave the room. Yeah. Yeah. That must've been dramatic. And, and so that happened, you, you lost your chance to do that talk and then where did it go from there? Were you in the hospital for a day or two or what happened? Yeah, I kind of, um, I don't know my, my thought process. So after that day, I went back to my hotel room and, uh, things got dark for me very quickly in terms of like, I thought about ending my life. Um, because you know, the, the mind plays some serious tricks on us. And at that point I thought I was catastrophizing so badly. I thought things were so bad. The reality is, is that apart from outside of me, everybody else thought I just had a bad day. Um, but I, I transformed that into a bad life. And so, um, I didn't go to the hospital. I was almost too ashamed to go to the hospital. I thought they're just gonna, they're not going to take me seriously or I'm losing my mind as is classically the case. So I just sort of, to try and continue the illusion of the fact that I was okay, I just, I just buried it again for a bit longer. I tucked it up under my arm. I went into the wet and work the next day. said I got the flu, said I was sick. And, um, that's, you know, why I was pale and sweating quite a lot. Um, and, and just kind of carried on. And, and then over the, and I managed to keep up that routine, kind of being in constant pain for, uh, for 18 months to two years of driving to work every day, feeling sick to my stomach, having to walk out of meetings due to kind of constant, persistent panic attacks. Um, and eventually I just, eventually enough was enough and I had to, I had to do something about it. And so then you you admitted to yourself then more or less that you were having issues, panic issues, anxiety issues. Is is that where it came first to yourself and then you sought help? Yeah, exactly. I think step one was like admitting it that I had a problem to right. to a challenge to overcome, something to deal with. Anxiety was and still is to to a greater extent so stigmatized in my mind as this weakness that um, means that we're broken. Um, but the truth is, is as I find out, as I travel and speak to people and do, you know, whether I'm 
speaking on stage or speaking on a podcast or whatever, you know, I, I tell my story and I have line, line up of people afterwards to tell me they feel exactly the same way. Mm. So you, know? you have a way of telling that story so that you connect with people and then, then you can help them, I'm assuming. What, how long did it take you before you were able to move into that place where you could help others? Um, it took me a few years because I kind of, um, it took me about two years to, to sort myself out yeah. in terms of, I left my job. I kind of minimized, I, I kind of had to reverse engineer my life to some extent and take some of it apart in terms of this massive expense that I built up, uh, with the support and help of my wife to kind of say, look, let's just get simplify this a lot and take the pressure off of me so that I can then do something else. And so I took medication. It didn't feel good. I saw a psychologist. It didn't really, didn't really, it didn't really help me move forward. And so I started to experiment on myself to some extent, which included, you know, looking at the food I ate, looking at the exercise I did, uh, the friends I hung around with, the work I wanted to do, the information I consumed, whether that was news or books that I was reading. And I just, I, I kind of left nothing on the, no stone unturned and looked at all aspects of my life and just thought, if one of these can make me feel 10% better, then I've, I've got to keep looking for the different parts. And and that's a big thing I've learned is, is that if you wake up tomorrow and have your first ever panic attack, you're going to look for a cure because that's what we want. We want to be told there's an easy fix, which today is, is pushed in the form of a pill. Um, and the truth is there isn't one. The, the truth is the fix is actually changing, fundamentally changing your life somehow because for people who suffer with anxiety and where it's not a, um, a psychiatric condition where it's just good old fashioned anxiety, um, in all the people I've spoken to and worked with, the truth is, it's a reminder that something in your life is out of alignment. I often use the analogy that it's kind of like an alarm bell ringing and you can throw a blanket over it. You can shut the door, you can leave the house, but the alarm bell's still going to ring until you go and inspect it and, and, you know, put the fire out, so to speak, or do something about it. Okay. So, but wait, so how do we know when there, when it's not a psychiatric condition? So you said a psychiatric condition or just old fashioned anxiety, what exactly is the difference? How are we even going to know how to identify that? Yeah. I mean, for most people, um, you know, just everybody, everybody pretty much that I've come across, uh, the, the, the kind of, the more difficult version of anxiety for people if they've had, um, you know, brain damage in terms of an accident or something which is, you know, more more permanently going to change things. If it's something where one day you were fine, the next day you had a panic attack, then that's just, you know, situational anxiety or epigenetic, as some people might say, subject to your environment, not subject to anything else. And even, you know, even people I've spoken to have said, well, my parents were anxious, therefore I'm anxious. They they also have the ability to change as well. Sure. So you said food, friends, exercise, information. Did you start with all four of those areas or did you start with exercise? Did you start with food? Where? Mm. What was the first thing you did? Yeah, the first thing I did was, was leave my job. Um, and I kind of, I took some advice from a third party at some point and said, you know, my question to them was pretty simple was, am I broken? Is there something fundamentally wrong with me? Or is my situation making me anxious? 
Um, and I've had this question myself since from dozens of people. And the answer is always the same, which is change your situation and see what happens. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I ended up leaving my job and that took a lot of weight off my shoulders. Um, then I started going to the gym more regularly. And as I learned about that, I found which forms of exercise felt best to me. Uh, and then I started looking at the food I was eating. Would sugar play a role? Would caffeine play a role? Uh, and of course, now I know they do. Um, and then, you know, like other simple things, like I realized that the news was making me anxious or stressed. And so I stopped watching the news altogether, felt much better. Um, and, and so as I kind of go through this experience, I'm, I'm kind of like on a search for anything which can help me have more of a stable equilibrium and just, you know, consistent energy and, uh, less brain fog, you know, alcohol, for instance, my wife used to say, you know, I, I, I noticed one day I said, I just don't, not really interested in drinking anymore. Um, it used to be, you know, working for the weekend come Friday night, I'd be like, I'd already have selected the alcohol I was going to consume the craft beer or the bottle of wine or whatever it was. Um, and I said, I just noticed I don't feel like drawn towards alcohol as much. I still drink sometimes. Um, and she said, well, that's because you, you're not trying to numb out your life anymore. Right. That um, makes sense. and that's exactly what I was trying to do was just, I was, you know, I, I was, that was a way of escaping, which is very, very common. Right. Exactly. So Tim, let's go back to the gym. What is it that mm. works for you in the gym? What helps you get that feeling that you have the consistent energy and that you are motivated to then go on and continue your day and your week? Mm. Yeah. So I, uh, a couple of things I went, I didn't, first of all, I, I went, I've been through a few iterations of this and I, it can change over time to start with. I kind of got heavily into CrossFit. Um, and I think I do think CrossFit is brilliant for people in terms of the community and the exercise. But for me, I kind of overdid it a bit and ended up going, you know, six days a week and, and kind of just, um, overtraining to some extent, which also can, you know, is a, a physical form of stress. Right. right so right, right. I kind of dialed it back a bit and went back to my, my kind of more traditional, um, weightlifting regime, which still includes every week. I still do squats, deadlifts, bench press, pull-ups, like the main, um, the main sort of functional movements. Uh, it's just now I'm doing them in, you know, I'm trying to work on my form. I'm doing them more consistently and slowly and purposefully. Um, and then outside of that, I just have this mantra, which I use both myself and with clients, which is move every day. So I'll go to the gym three times a week, but every day I'll do something. And, and a lot of days that's a walk for 20 minutes. Um, it could be, you know, wrestling with my kids or playing tag with my kids or chasing after them on their skateboards. Yesterday, for instance, I put on my rollerblades and I live kind of on the seawall. So I, we rollerbladed into town, you know, had a, had a drink with, uh, with the kids, got them a, a a tea and a, a hot chocolate and stuff. And then they were on their scooters and then we rollerbladed around and came all the way back. So that was probably, you know, a good hour of whipping along the path and getting a bit of uh, a sweat on, but it, it was fun. And, um, so I've kind of like, I've gone from working out like it was my job to now working out like it's, uh, a lot more enjoyable, you know, put some fun back into it. Sure. It's just a fun part of your life. Well, you mentioned sugar, you mentioned caffeine. Tell me the changes you've made to your diet. Yeah. So I, you know, start at the bottom, the, the, the basic 
acronym I always use with people is CATS. Um, and CATS stands for caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, and sugar. Um, all of which are, are bad for a variety of different reasons. Caffeine's obviously a stimulant. Sugar, a lot of people, when they're, when they're sensitive or um, feel anxious, sugar replicates that feeling because it kind of jacks us up and then drops us off the end of a cliff as the sugar crashes and we feel hungry again. And, and so that perpetual cycle um, can trigger anxious feelings in people. So we try to eliminate that. Um, for me, I initially went to uh, a paleo, a paleolithic style diet, which, um, you know, there's lots of different forms of it out there. But that one I like because it's fairly straightforward. It essentially means don't eat stuff out of boxes um, and stay away from refined sugar. Uh, it's kind of getting back to meat and vegetables, right? So I, in my diet, I eat a lot of um, fish, I eat a lot of beef and chicken, uh, some pork and a ton of broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, spinach, collard greens, all of these beautiful, dark, rich vegetables, which I either pan fry or roast or what, whatever's going on. But that's the majority of my diet. I'm, if you tolerate eggs a lot, you know, some people have, uh, reactions to eggs, but if you can, then eggs are amazing as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the foods we notice which cause reactions in people. Um, th there's been more and more scientific research done recently on inflammation in our bodies as a result of food. So um, we know that 1% of the population has celiac disease from eating gluten um, found in flour and bread and pasta and all the rest of it. Um, but more evidence is coming out recently, which is suggesting that everybody is intolerant to some extent of gluten. And so one of the easy things we can do is to start remove some of those inflammatory um, nutrients out of our diet. A lot of people quickly feel better when we talk about sort of brain fog or fuzziness and all those sorts of things tend to go away when we're not inflaming ourselves. And, and, uh, I'm super interested in the nutrition stuff, but there was a book written a couple of years ago called grain brain, which talks about just that. And, uh, it says that, you know, a high diet of, of gluten and wheat and those sorts of things leads to early onset of Alzheimer's and dementia. And, and so we're getting into the, the brain health aspect, which then leads also has a, a direct connection to depression, anxiety, and, and other stuff like that. You didn't mention pasta and rice. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, pasta has gluten in it. Generally, sure, you can sure. get gluten-free pasta, so that would be fine. Um, white rice is deemed to be a pretty uh, good, clean-burning carbohydrate. It doesn't really have anything in it. Um, so it's not going to give you loads of nutrients, but it's also not going to give you an inflammatory response because it's just it's pretty clean. So, um, yeah, if, for me, you know, sushi would be a great choice when you're eating um, you know, fresh, raw fish and, uh, white rice is very good. Um, yeah. And so then you mentioned friends. So did mm. you change your circle of friends? Did you just systematically go about looking at who your friends were and you, you made those changes? Um, I think, you know, the, the old adage of you are the five people you spend the most time with, uh, right. is, is there's so much truth in that statement that, if you're surrounded, I mean, look, sit down with a piece of paper and a pen and write down the five people you spend the most time with and then consider each of those relationships in isolation. And are those people 
paying you compliments? Are they lifting you up? Are they saying, Bruce, you should go for it. Tim, you should go for it. You should start the new business or ask the girl out or do whatever the thing is. Um, or are they saying, oh, I wouldn't do that if I were you. That's scary and you're probably going to fail. And, uh, you know, so that then plays massively into our psychology. And some people say, well, it's my family or it's my best friend or whatever it is. But we all have the ability to change and a choice to do something different. Sometimes that might be, you know, a massively uncomfortable conversation. And other times it might be that you just, you know, stop returning that phone call. But um, friends are important. And, and the second part of that is, and, and my wife kind of laughs about this, is that I, I choose my friends. Um, like I hand pick my friends based on, um, you know, who I think I would have a, a really good relationship with and, and like to be around. I think we naturally do this in life sometimes. But I've had a couple of occasions where I've said, I just spent a couple hours with this guy. And gone extremely well with them. I'm going to now make a, a concerted effort to to build a stronger bond with that individual. Um, and those, you know, in a couple of those instances, those are now my best friends in the world and people I speak to multiple times a week. And they're people who are positive, making changes. They care about the things I care about. And this is different for different people. But we are talking about exercise and nutrition and mental health and entrepreneurship and, and, you know, travel and just all of the things that kind of get us pumped up. So, um, that's not to say that you can't be uh, a positive person surrounded by people who are, aren't, but it's damn slight easier if you, if you're hanging out with people who are after similar things. Yeah. Yeah. And then you decided to just eliminate the news from your life. Did you do that mm. with media in general, with social media? How far did you take that? Yeah. So the, the I mean, I always talk about my, one of my childhood experiences. My dad was, was very big on reading the news. And I, I remember specifically the, the nine o'clock news in England when I was growing up had a very distinctive tuned to it had a very distinctive kind of, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Theme tune as it came on. And that was always where my dad said, it's time to go to bed, Tim. And I was like, Oh God. Um, <laughs> but the first few, you know, when they, when the news comes on, it would be like, this happened in this country, which is really bad. You know, this, um, happened somewhere else and these people died and, and all of that kind of sensationalized stuff to get our attention. Um, and I just questioned that. Um, and, and, partly because when I was working, when I was anxious, I would just put on talk radio and drive into the office. And I would hear about all the car crashes and deaths and danger in the world. Um, and so that was my information diet. So I just turn the news off. I don't watch TV anymore. Um, we have uh, a Netflix account, which so we can watch films and stuff. But I don't watch TV, so I don't get the adverts and I don't get the news feed. Um, I don't look at news on the internet. And some people might say, well, that's kind of sticking your head in the sand. And the truth is, is that anything of any significance that happens, so many people are connected today that you find out very quickly anyway. You don't need to get it within the first 30 seconds. Um, and so, yeah, and, and social media has been another thing where I, I'm active on social media because it's how I connect to my audience and clients and all the rest of it. But I'm not a big consumer of social media. Um, so I go on there and post and interact with with uh, people that I know or people that um, follow me. But I don't sit there and scroll through news feeds just for the sake of it. Because I, I, again, I'm then I'm picking up stuff which wasn't even in my 
view, which now, you know, is something that I'm going to think about. Right. So, so let's talk about fear. When mm. you look back to the anxiety you had, can you pin it to certain fears that you had? Um, yeah, I think, you know, as I talked about with the alarm bell, I think fear right. kind of hovers over things which are significant. And uh, that used to be from a negative point of view, um, but it also can be from a positive point of view. If you're just about to, uh, like if somebody phones you up and said, right, we want you to come and do this speaking engagement or we want you to take over this new business or um, start something and it, and it gives you that feeling of fear, like, can I do it? Will I survive? Will I make it? All those sorts of things. Um, those those instances where I've I've stepped towards it and embraced it have actually been the biggest growth points of my life. Um, and as Seth Godin, the marketer, marketing expert says, sometimes, sometimes in life, we have the opportunity to use fear as a compass to move towards, not away from. Feel the fear and do it anyway, right? right. Yeah, I, for I, sure. I say that like, you know, fear is a barometer of significance. So something we're very scared about is potentially something we really need to do. Um, and, and that's at the same time where we actually truly cultivate our own um, organic confidence, something which we build ourselves, not something which is handed to us by a title or a qualification or something else, but something we actually, you know, we lean into that fear and do it anyway. And we've, we've built some inbuilt uh, belief in ourselves, in our ability to endure, in our ability to get the job done. Um, that's where it's really powerful. Right. Well, speaking of fear, I've worked in bullying prevention for some time, and I'm wondering if you have a, a story. Maybe you were bullied. Maybe mindfulness would have made a difference. Maybe there was fear involved. Can you share something like that with us? Yeah, absolutely. I was bullied uh, a decent amount as a as a chubby preteen and teenager. Oh. Um, I have my fair share. And I when I kind of connect back to that anxious feeling, um, in terms of the, the fear, that feeling in my stomach, I think back to when I was at school. Um, and I used to take the bus to high school and there were certain characters who were in the school and then kind of recently, um, kind of graduated students who would be, you know, 17, 18 years old would hang around at the school. Right. Um, and yeah, a lot of the time the, the conversations were things like, I'll get you after school. Um, and so I would spend the day and, you know, I'm six foot three, so you can't help but stand out a little bit. And a lot of people interpret that as a threat just by the mere fact that you're standing up. Yes. Um, and yeah, people would say, I'll get you after school. And I would spend, you know, my whole day panicking and being scared and trying to hide and avoid them and sneak onto the bus without being seen. And, um, you know, sometimes I'd get away with it and sometimes I wouldn't, but yeah, that that was uh, a fairly persistent thing um, in my life. And for sure, I think that people who experience anxiety are maybe more predisposed to being sensitive individuals. Um, I do think of like the concept of um, people with anxiety just tend to be more aware of what's going on to the you know, which can be positive and it can also be to your detriment. So more aware of conversations, of feelings, of threats. You know, for instance, when I was a kid, um, I would, when kid, teenager, I'd walk into a pub and just by feeling the energy in the pub, I could tell if this was like 
we should leave some there's going to be a fight breaking out or something bad's going to happen and you know friends would be like oh no it's fine and we're we're in now and blah 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 and and you know give it 10 15 minutes and something would happen just because of that energetic aggression that you could kind of feel and so yeah a lot of the time at school i was around i was around that and a couple of times i got got physically punched in the face so i had to try and stand up for myself uh as a result of it but um yeah it was it was pretty rife i like to talk about meditation is meditation part of your life yeah i love meditation yeah um I kind of do it. I have a couple of different ways of doing it. Um, I have meditation where I just do some guided meditation just for relaxation purposes. And then I have kind of like meditation with a purpose where I, where I'll do some, like I recently did, uh, my biggest speaking engagement today, um, in front of a big crowd. And so building up to that, I was doing some, some relaxing meditation. And then towards the end, I'd build in some visualization. So I would picture myself smiling and walking up onto stage and looking at the crowd and walking through my speech, um, and being successful. And when I got up there on the day of my speech, I, I literally felt like I'd been there before. Um, and so I think that was kind of building that in and, and cultivating it. And then, and then I also like encourage people to not be attached to meditate in a certain way. It doesn't have to be lotus position on a cushion, with scented candles. Um, sometimes I'll just walk down the road where I live and sit on the park bench and just get quiet and, uh, stare out to sea or just close my eyes and feel the, the air on my face and just really connect to, to what's around me. So, um, but the big thing I think is, is, is about, you know, cultivating a practice and, uh, doing something consistent. Yeah, I agree. And speaking of that, Talk about med- talk about uh, journaling. I understand that that's something that's important in your life. Yeah, I mean, I actually created a book, uh, a product called the Anxiety Journal, which is specifically to to kind of delve into a lot of the stuff I talk about. But um, I love journaling. I, I mean, I just love writing stuff down. I just like physically having. I have a moleskin, smaller moleskin book, which kind of fits in my pocket, which I carry around at all times because. What I noticed with myself again around fear or stress or anxiety is that when these thoughts only reside in our heads, it's very easy to chase them around endlessly. Um, We will never, on some occasions, never come to a resolution in our heads because we'll be like, how does it feel now? And what about this intrusive thought I just had and now it won't go away? Um, So I literally say to people who are struggling with things of this nature, get your pen and paper out and write down whatever comes into your head. Just get it out of your head and think of it like an emptying, uh, onto paper, get onto paper, write it down. So there's a very practical, and it doesn't work if you type it into your cell phone, you have to physically connect your, your pen or pencil and write it on paper. There's something about that. Maybe it's primal, but there's something about that process, which seems to really work. Um, but I like to journal and answer a few questions, talk a bit about gratitude to talk a bit about, um, things to do that upcoming day, which are going to move the needle for me and be significant and make a difference. Um, and then there's other times where I just like to freestyle morning pages, if you will, and, uh, just write down whatever comes into my head and just a, a conscious stream of thought just to get it out, just like a cleansing. 
Yeah, that that's really valuable, I find, in my life as well. Tim, I'm going to ask you five quick answer questions. The first one is, who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness? Um, a big one, I think, would be, I mean, I, I'm going to say Tim Ferriss, just because he, you know, kind of by proxy of him, he's had a lot of people in his world through his blog and his podcast, which talk a lot about meditation and mindfulness and slowing down and disconnecting. So I think that's, that would probably be my answer for that one. So how has mindfulness affected your emotions, Tim? Um, by allowing me to process them. Uh, I think a lot of the time we try and distract ourselves with music or television or exercise and mindfulness means that we actually can fully be present for whatever it is we're feeling. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness practice. Yeah, I noticed that when I was most anxious, I was breathing in my chest um, or breathing up and down is another way to put it. So your kind of shoulders are going up and down. And so one of the things I do to reconnect and ground myself is I rest my hand kind of on on the top of my belt or where my belt would be um, and just make sure that I'm breathing diaphragmatically, belly breathing in and out, not up and down. Right. Right. I know that Mindful Tribe will be interested in your anxiety journal, but could you recommend another book on mindfulness? Yeah. I mean, I, I go back to the, the, the Power of Now right. by Eckhart Tolle. That's kind of a classic of, you know, just being very present and not trying to be anywhere else. Sure, sure. I know that some people find apps that help them in their productivity or they help keep their mind organized or in some way that app helps them with their mindfulness. Do you find that you use an app to help be more mindful? No, I don't. Okay. Okay. Just because I think, I've, <laughs> I mean, um, don't ever quote me on this if I bring out some amazing app in the future, but I think... Um, <laughs> A lot of the time people need to, you know, going to an app means that we're going to our device, which then means that we'll be checking Facebook before we know it. So um, I like to go back to good old fashioned paper and pen. That's where I get my break. Right. I appreciate that. I really do. Tim, it has been such a pleasure to be with you today to talk with you about all of your expertise in these areas. How can Mindful Tribe reach out to you and learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, absolutely. Love to connect with people. So um, anxietypodcast.com, that's probably the easiest way to put it. You go there and there's there's some free resources in terms of my um, end anxiety toolkit, which you can get your hands on. Um, and there I talk about all the work I do, whether it's coaching or consulting or experiences. Uh, and then if you're online, um, Tim J.P. Collins, J for James, P for Peter, Tim J.P. Collins on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find me and connect and say hi and, um, yeah, carry on the conversation. Perfect. Nobody should have to suffer anxiety alone. There are so many ways to learn about it, learn from you, listen to your podcast, learn about how we can change our lives so that anxiety is not such a big factor. Thank you again for sharing with us today, Tim. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. Yeah, all the best. Bye now. Bye-bye. 
Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.